Hello and welcome back to the Cogno podcast. I'm your host and founder, Kirsty, and I'm extremely excited to introduce a registered nutritionist and a true advocate of evidence-based well-being. Today we meet James, who is not only the co-founder of Huel, but also the head of sustainable nutrition. He's worked in nutrition and dietetics, including the NHS, for over 27 years. In the episode, we'll explore his own life and journey with health and well-being, as well as the insights into why nutrition and mental health is so intertwined. Welcome. Good to be here, Kirsty. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on, and I'm really excited to have you on the Cogno community. If you could just give us a little bit of your own background, a short summary into where your interest comes from and your background in this space. So let's start back at the, the beginning, beginning. I got into nutrition during my teens, was interested in, in bodybuilding and fitness. And we'll come back to those in a moment, I'm sure. Then I went to nutrition to study nutrition and dietetics at the University of Surrey. Graduated and did what most people who've done that degree did and went to work in the NHS as a clinical dietitian. Always kind of knew NHS and clinical nutrition wasn't for me long term, but I kind of knew there'd be some good experience to be gained from there. But my passion was really working in fitness and bodybuilding, so there was a bit of overlap that I managed to leave the NHS, I think it was around 2002, and then worked in the fitness and bodybuilding world for lots of years, um, co-founded a uh, reasonably successful bodybuilding discussion forum called musclethought.co.uk. That ticked over for many years until social media started becoming a thing and people stopped posting on forums and what... So then that led to us not having so much advertisers. and But I was always consulting as well all through the time that I had um, muscle talking before muscle talk. So to where I'd see, uh, give nutrition advice initially face-to-face, then as online nutrition became a thing, did that. Ran a couple of other ventures in the fitness world as well that was completely fell on their ass. Um, and, uh, but due to the consulting in 2014, I got an email from Julian Hearn, who I didn't know at the time, who's the, the principal founder of Huel, and wanting someone to work with him on this exciting project he had and work with him. And a year later, we launched, I became co-founder, and we went from there. And we're now on eight and a half years later. We're now got about 270 people working for us, over five offices, um, and we're a you know, global food brand. It's an incredible journey. I mean, I think I saw recently that Huel has sold 300 million. Yes, well over that now. Yeah, 300 million meals, yeah. Around 80 countries. Yes, that's right, yeah. Which is crazy. And you've just kind of given a snapshot of your journey there. But there's so much to explore in that. But if we can just go right back to your teenage years, was there something that you remember that really drove you to go into nutrition? Yeah, it's a great question. This comes up quite a bit and it's always a pretty cool story, I guess. I attribute two factors to the reason I thought I'd do the the nutrition thing. Mm-hmm. Um, firstly, uh, I when I was about eight, my mum was diagnosed with terminal breast cancer, and apparently unbeknown to me at the time, she was only given a few months to live. Also, um, she managed to last eleven years, um, and she saw me get to university for the first year to to start a nutrition degree, which was great. But part of her treatment and the way she managed to keep herself going so long, other than the, the brilliant work the NHS d- did, although obviously this was 1980s and medical advances weren't so so good as they are today, um, she changed her diet and whole lifestyle, her outlook on life, including the way she eats, um, started following um, certain regimes. Now, some of the things she did are very pseudoscientific and the kind of thing I fight against today, but nevertheless... There, there was a focus on nutrition, some good food, some you know, good quality cooked food at home. Mum was a good cook. 
So I was fed well. There was a lot of nutrition talk. That kind of obviously leached into my brain yeah. and I wanted to further it. The other was, of course, classic case of skinny, wimpy kid, bullied at school here, then decided when he was about 16 would pick up some heavy things and hopefully get some bigger muscles and really got into bodybuilding at about 16, quite young. Um, very skinny to beforehand. And then when I did my A-levels, I thought I should probably go to uni. I had a year out before um, uni. <clears throat> I thought, what do I apply for? Did I did really well at economics at A-level. Should I do that? Sensible option. Or should I go with my heart, so to speak, and do nutrition? You know, nutrition, knowledge is power, as the saying goes. If I can learn about nutrition, I can get bigger muscles and et cetera, et cetera. So I did that thing and... Did my four-year degree in nutrition with dietetics and, and went from there. So kind of cross between my mum and wanting bigger muscles. It's quite interesting. That's kind of like two major factors, yeah. which must have increased your awareness so much, but from very different angles. Quite, yeah. Was there one that you lent into more? Like, Do you think it was the cooking at home or your own motivation? Oh, it was absolutely my own motivation. I mean, I was a teenager who just wanted to do anything you could to get bigger, you know, within reason. And that it meant... It, having good food. Um, How did you grow your own awareness and knowledge at that stage? Well, I was, I was at uni, obviously learning, but I did read books. There was a lot of um, bodybuilding and fitness, nutrition books from the 80s. I'm sure there's a lot, lot of rubbish in them now, but yeah. it still was food awareness, right? You learn what protein are. I mm. made sure I could name all the vitamins in alphabetical order and did things. I don't mean ABC, but I mean by their actual name in alphabetical order and things like that and little tricks like that. What does each one do? So I just mm -hmm. used to read downtime at home, maybe read books like that. How did your own nutrition while you were working at the NHS after uni reflect kind of that bodybuilding stage? I was that I was following a fairly strict regime, not, not as strict as some guys do. Like, yeah. Ultimately, I wasn't... Obsessed is a, is a funny word, isn't it, right? Mm. I, to some degree, I probably was. Definitely had the body dysmorphia thing, looking back. But I'm not obsessed like some, as in I didn't follow a strict regime. But I would kind of count calories. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I went through periods where I just did the, the bulking thing bodybuilders do and just eat crap as well as good food. Not great. But, you know, at uni, so prior to that... Uh, I just I did weird, a stupid thing. I've not spoken about this on a podcast before, actually, but... If you half-cooked rice, this was the theory of a naive 19-year-old going, half-cooked rice and drink it with a hot cup of tea, then the rice will, will expand in your stomach and make it bigger and then you can eat more later and get bigger. Yes, I know how that sounds. <laughs> that was one of the weird things I would do. I'd see the rice and then, then the tuna. The tuna separately afterwards, by the way, so I could just have the rice expanding in my stomach. Probably didn't work. Not healthy. Felt bloated afterwards for sure, mm -hmm. but at that point, so you were, you were learning about diet, nutrition, all these different healthy habits. Do you think that your balance between healthy and bodybuilding ever swayed one way or the other? Oh, health was secondary to bodybuilding. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't unconsidered. I'd always have my veg, put it that way. But that was that was a tick box, fruit and veg. That was my tick box. What was your mental health like as a teenager when you did decide to make that switch from being a shyer scorn your child into your words <laughs> into <laughs> stronger and more aware I had mental health issues mainly with depression for most of my life up until probably as recent as six years ago to be honest on and off not bad you know looking in my life has been relatively good compared to most people's mm. with a lot of ups and downs but it's good definitely had issues as a kid I was the bullied thing bothered me I mean I'm sure course, all kids get yeah. bullied I went to a private school so arguably it wasn't as 
as harsh as it could have been for some other kids, but it was constant verbal put-downs, and that used to really affect me. Changes um, your psyche as well. It does. It, it, um, yeah, it was physical sometimes, but not, not as often as it is for some kids, for sure. Some kids did it a lot harder than me, but it really got to me. And um, I'm dealing with my mum's... My mum as well, obviously, was an issue, especially on the latter stages, which was when I was at uni at 19, that last year was was hard. I never dealt with relationship breakups very well. Um, I I was always the dumped rather than the dump, the dumper. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that used to affect me as well. So there was always, always issues mm-hmm. like that. Do you think you learned quite quickly to use food as a way of like managing your well-being and managing your mental health? Or no, that wasn't really an issue for me. No, it was no that that, that wasn't thing. The whole the whole bodybuilding thing was an issue for me um, during my NHS days. I, I started working in the doors as a as a bouncer, a pub and club bouncer. Wasn't so bad back in the nineties when the a lot of the places I worked would shut at eleven. So. But I was working, you know, I was in the gym. Then you get asked to come and, you know, come and work. You think that would be a great idea. NHS pays shit. So can you get a bit of extra money? Yeah, yeah. You're working Thursday, Friday, Saturday. You've got the build anyway. Yeah, yeah, you got the build and you're working with mates. Not good for you psychologically. So take a Thursday night, I might be working. Right, finishing, you know, by the time you're in bed and you've settled down, it's quarter past 12. Mm. Okay, you've got to be at work for half eight the next day. It is a half hour drive. You're tired. You're working on doors with... Good people, but a lot of ego. Yeah. Um, probably having some rucks with people. You know, where I worked wasn't incredibly violent, but where you've got beer and you've got men, you've got violence. So, you know, there was a few instances and I might be working and then you're you're in that zone, stressful. I don't I don't want to play it down and make it worse than it is, but never it's still stressful. You still have to be vigilant, there's still things happening. You have to have confrontations, even if you're just telling people not to come in. The next morning at 9am, I could be on the wards helping a little old lady um, with their sip feeds. Who aren't eating very well, trying to counsel them. That was a kind of a mind mess, you know, for oh, one of them. living in a bit yeah, of a double life. I was, I was absolutely. It was, it was an issue for me. At the time, I had, and I did have some, did see a counsellor at the time yeah. to sort of support me through that. And actually, you know, you have, I had a few counsellors and this particular one, she was, it, it, it wasn't good. It was a negative experience seeing the counsellor because she told me, I don't know how, but the, it came in conversation. I've probably got these double lives. And she said, you can't live your life like that. She told me I can't do it. And then I went and saw another one through the NHS. And she was lovely. She was brilliant. Yeah. Well, she, the second one, I wish I could find her again and thank her because she really helped me. And I told her about this other one. She said, she said well, why not? Why, why not? You're you. What was she sharing? Was it how to cope with that double life going on? Or how did she guide you through it? The, the second one, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, she just, um, just told me just more to be you, accept who you are, was, was, was that mm. rather than, than trying to change yourself. It is tricky, though, when you have, when you almost feel like your personality has to fit an environment, and that really is two yep. very different environments. Yes, it is. So you can see how your kind of sense of self is confused without yeah. you even Yeah, and I'm naive, and, you know, I consider myself someone who tries to be self-aware now, whether I am or not, I don't know. Because yeah. I wouldn't be aware of it. There's a paradox there, but yeah, totally. I certainly do work to try and increase my self awareness. And looking back at that person, then the lack of self awareness was massive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has a knock on into your self esteem, and then your relationships with people, and it goes out. So it definitely. does just show how important support is. How did you navigate changing those different career blocks? There was always overlap. You know what? Mm. Here's a bit of advice for anyone listening. I was told when I was younger, I've always been quite motivated, wanted to do stuff. And they used to say, 
if you wanted to, if you want to be successful, you've got to put your finger in loads of different pies. You've got to try mm. loads of things. That was the worst advice I ever had. Because what did I do? I did that. And when I was in the fitness world, I had several different ventures running concurrently, and I never focused on any one of them. So at best, like Muscle Talk did okay, and the most of them did nothing. When I was putting all my energy into one one venture with Huel, along with my, my brilliant colleagues, that's when things started to work. Okay, there are other other factors come into that, but the, you know, it's if it's, you know, I get the advice. Yeah. It's just whether I misunderstood it or it was relayed in the wrong way. I think you can do several things at once, but you have to get one of them up and being super successful and self-sustaining before you move on to your next one. It's really interesting, and I want to explore nutrition and mental health and just start with asking you about you. And you know, it's got huge emphasis on balanced nutrition and being a complete meal. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that you'll be able to tell us more about this than I will. But can you just share a little bit on how Huel has emerged as a solution to bridge the gap between nutritional needs, flavour and accessibility? Yeah, we, we developed Huel. Uh, it, was, it was Julian's idea. He, he'd been um, working on other projects and was finding preparing food quite inconvenient. But the one thing he found convenient was protein shakes. So his idea was, why can't we get everything into one shape? Great idea, as it turned out. So that's when he got in touch with me. Um, and and developing something that was... I mean, one of the ma- mantras we've, we have at Huel is nutrition first, taste a close second. So that's kind of a mindset, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because we're all about nutrition, but it's got to taste well. It's got to, it's got to taste good. Now, um, it's also got to be commercially viable because if it's too expensive, people aren't going to buy it. So, yeah, being profitable aside, if you're going to create the best product and you just want it to help people, maybe have the best nutrition credentials, the best environmental credentials, but it doesn't taste that great, it's not marketed very well, and it's not commercially viable, you've failed in your first objectives because nobody can afford it or hears about it or wants to buy it again. So you have to factor in all to, to get it to work. And, you know, in the early days, I'm sure you all tasted fine. Obviously, people bought it, but the product development team... Um, and the ingredient technologists, et cetera, at, at Huel do a brilliant job of making this, the, the Huel products taste nicely. So I'll, I'd ruin them with making them all optimal for nutrition, but, but they, yeah. they managed to work with, you know, work with me and the nutrition team to make the products nutritionally optimal and taste good. And that term nutritionally optimal, can you just give like a little bit of an understanding of what that means? Okay, that's a broad term. I realise what I've said there is a yeah. bit flippant. You know, there's a, um, what's optimal for one individual is is different what's optimal to another. Yeah. And, you know, whilst we design Huel around a nutritionally complete diet, i.e. if one were to consume 2,000 calories a day of our products, one would get optimal amounts of all nutrients. But we don't expect people to have... Only heal. In fact, we probably encourage people not to have only heal, although you, you could and some people do and we've run trials to, to demonstrate it. We want people to have heal for one or two meals a day or even less frequent than that. We have people who who have heal just a couple of times a week just when it's inconvenient. Maybe they're on the road and they're busy and that's, that's great. So heal is to have as much or as little as you like to suit you, to support you in your, in your having a good diet. And it's there as an alternative for people who making bad food choices or are rushed or, or and affordable as well. We've, we've developed the product. All our products are very affordable. We've even got the Huel Essential range, which is 
um, in a bigger bag to make it more cost effective. So people who are on a tight budget, especially with the current cost of living crisis, have got an option there where they can have a complete meal and know that they've got everything sorted um, for just a little over one pound. I think it's a really interesting idea, this like accessibility to nutrient completeness with whether it's the cost of living crisis, whether it's the access. Do you think that there is a problem in society at the moment with access to just good food? Oh, there's absolutely a problem. I know a lot of your listeners will be interested in the, the mental health side as equally as nutrition. There's a, a really interesting book came out this year by Kimberly Wilson called Unprocessed, who's a, a psychologist, I think, by background with a nutrition background as well. A really interesting skill set she's got. And her book uh, talks about this um, and very much focuses on the, the income disparity um, and the fact that people are making bad food choices because it's cheaper. And that's... You know, maybe that's contributing to worse problems. And she has a whole chapter on the on the pregnancy side and mothers not consuming good diet during pregnancy uh, for no fault of their own because they haven't been taught the skills. You know, we're on the generations now. You're a couple of generations later. In my generation, there's Gen Xs. We were taught those skills. Yeah. Um, and the millennials and, and Gen Zs, it's 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 harder. And also then don't have the income. And let's say, you know, maybe a mother's working two jobs, single mum with two jobs. Uh, it, it's hard, it's challenging. So there's a massive income disparity. So there's that, but it's, it's choosing the wrong foods, but it's also not choosing the right foods or getting the right nutrients. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously in pregnancy, it's, it's a big deal because you're, you know, there's two two people's nutrition you're potentially yeah. compromising. And, and this is absolutely a no-fault a no thing because people don't know what, what to have. And it, it's, it's, it's hard to navigate and... What really annoys me is some of these social media influencers that tell people who aren't making good food choices to stop being lazy. It's just not helpful, and I would say it's it's actually compromising them further. You know, some people don't have the ability to make the right food choices financially or educationally or even just conveniently. And just to kick them when they're down really gets on my nerves. I'm really glad you've brought up social media there because it's such a huge topic in general. But I think when we start looking at nutrition and well-being and that crossover as well, even someone who, you know, studies psychology and neuroscience, has an interest in this field, finds the conflicting information on social media so difficult to navigate. And especially with food, it's at no, again, it's, I agree with you that it's at no fault yeah. of the person consuming that information. Of course, you have a responsibility to do your own research but how do we navigate that okay i've got a few easy tips how can someone navigate who which social media influencer which communicator is giving good advice and which is giving totally. bad there's a few key watch outs so firstly this is the big one does the individual speak in absolutes if they say don't do this or you will get such and such or you must do this to stop so and so they are very likely talking bullshit because science is nuanced, you know, with your background. Science is nuanced, it's full of, of unknowns. People are different, people are complex. There are no foods you should have, no foods you shouldn't have, okay? Which brings me on to the next one. Do they fearmonger or demonise certain foods? And say, so if you have this, it's bad for you. Big one is seed oils at the moment. Even, I've even seen some otherwise credible nutritionists talking about seed oils being bad for you. They're not. 
the evidence does not demonstrate that. I realise there'll be people listening to this now shouting at this. Uh, and, and But the, the evidence demonstrates, I've written an article about this on, on my Substack, um, where it's not just an article, I've gone through the evidence in depth. I'm going to be writing a follow-up article because that article's been criticised. Brilliant. That article's been, been criticised, so I'm going to be writing a follow-up, but that'll take me two or three months because I want to dig into the research. And... And then sweeteners is another one. Okay, we know there's an issue with sugar. It, it's hard, hard for people to navigate. So first one are the absolutes. Secondly, are they demonising foods and fear-mongering? The third one is, is actually difficult, and I'm a bit on the fence with this. Do they say the truth about such and such in their title or in their, in their clickbait? Mm. The problem is we've got to, got to a point where those sort of clickbaity catch head, uh, headlines are necessary for even credible people to use. So I'm okay-ish if a credible influencer or nutritionist uses the word the truth or the facts about in the tagline, provided that they, they qualify what they say within, the, within what they're next going to say. The other one is, do they have any ulterior motives or are they at least transparent about it? We all have biases. We all have our um, conflicts of interest. We can't help it. Whenever I'm giving uh, nutrition advice, even if I'm not mentioning Huel, I still have a conflict of interest. You just have to be transparent about it as much as you can. But your conflicts of interest don't have to be financially motivated or, or businesses that can just be Messiah complex, for instance. And this is what I see a lot of these pseudo-influence, uh, ultra-crepidarian types on social media. They've got the Messiah complex. I genuinely believe some of them feel they are helping people. They believe it. And, and they come with good intentions, but they're not cross-checking their own um, information. Therefore, they're giving dangerous advice. And, and this is hard to navigate. So there's a few watch outs. I think I've given four there. So what's the solution? Answer, listen to a range of different people. If you're into the carnival thing, don't just follow carnivals. Follow people, follow vegans as well. If you're a vegan, okay, I, I get that. There's a good reason to be a vegan, but follow some carnivals. At worst, it's going to happen. It's going to confirm that you're actually right in what you're doing. But but you want to follow the nutrition influencers who give nuance in the way they speak. Um, so Rihanna Lambert, I think she's excellent. Lane Norton, brilliant, world-class. Dr. Rids on social media. Rob Lapham, these are all very credible ones. Of course, that's just me saying that, so it could be my own biases coming in here. But there's a, range, you know, there's a range there, but you'll see the way they talk, very nuanced, giving suggestions, not telling people what they must do. Um, and it's hard to navigate. I think it's a really important reminder as well. Listen to the information being fed. We get a lot of information now through social media, but do be aware of what you're taking in. So I guess now a different question moving on from that is I'm interested to ask you a few specific questions on nutrition. If we use myself as an example, I was a vegetarian for seven years or something. I did eat a bit, bit of fish, but not loads. Um, but... In the last year, I've noticed myself eating a lot more processed foods. So instead of having chicken, I would eat a fake chicken or like whatever it might have been. And I started to feel not as healthy and whatever. I've actually reintroduced meat to my diet. And you've spoken a lot about ultra processed foods um, in your own work. And I'm interested to know like what your opinion is on that, especially from a vegetarian point of view and eating those fake meats. Brilliant question. So it depends on the so-called fake meat, for want of a better term, or the meat alternatives here. Some of them probably aren't so good. Some of them are. And I'm not going to name brands because 
I haven't tried a vast range of brands myself. It might have been you were lacking something in your diet rather than the having of these these meat alternatives. That might have been the issue. We don't know. Yeah. Yeah, we've got n equals one here for the for the experiment that you were running on yourself. So it's it's you know there's a lot of biases and nuances come in. Broadly speaking, though, I have an issue with the way the term ultra processed food is used. So maybe I should just point of view of the listeners just give a quick rundown on what the terminology come where yeah, it comes from what it is so, the term ultra processed food is generally claimed that it was never used before 2009 when a brazilian professor carlos montenero i think that's how you pronounce his surname from the university of sao paulo came up with the term and then with his colleagues in 2011 they wrote a paper that gave four definitions of, of the degree of processing of food. They call that the NOVA classification. That's N-O-V-O in capitals, but it's not an acronym. Group one are foods in their more or less in their natural form, but they can be cooked. It could be chopped or broken or, or, or some form like that. Group two are culinary ingredients that are used with group one to make them more palatable. So salt, spices, things like that. Group three are your more traditionally processed foods, so like bread that would be home-baked or made with minimal ingredients. It could include cakes or biscuits, again, made with minimal ingredients. It could, could even include things like crisps if they're just made with potatoes, oil and salt or whatever. Then group four is a so-called ultra-processed food that is typically something that couldn't be made routinely in a kitchen from ingredients that you could buy from your average shop. So it would be something that would be more on the industrial scale. And this includes all the obvious foods, the junk foods. And people say we should be getting away from the term junk food. I profoundly disagree. And they say we shouldn't be using the term junk food because we don't. it's, it's, it's not clearly defined. Well, as you'll see what I'm going to say in a moment, you'll see that's the whole point. Okay, we, when, you say the word, when I say the word junk food, broadly speaking, you know what I mean, right? You know you shouldn't be eating your, your fast food burgers and your fast food chicken and your biscuits and your crisps and your sweets and all stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, they're probably not that great for you to have too often. So, but the term ultra-processed food has also come to imply anything, any food that makes a health or nutrition claim, like low fat, low sugar, high fiber, healthy heart, healthy eating, anything like that. Typically, it's said that foods that make those claims are ultra-processed foods. Now, there are exceptions, but they but advocates of the terminology would say that's a key watch out. Again, I'll give you some examples in the moment where that falls down. There have been lots of rigorous, replicated research that have shown that diets that are high in ultra-processed food, i.e. Nova Group 4, are associated with increased incidence and worse disease outcome from a vast range of diseases, the metabolic diseases, cardiovascular disease, PCOS, diabetes, as well as some cancers, even... Um, risk of Alzheimer's, both looking at the outcome and certain markers of these disease. Who can dispute that? This is good research, replicated, done on a large scale, well designed. I'm not disputing that. That people that have large volumes of foods that fall, fall into NOVA 4 have an increased risk. Now, by implication, advocates of the terminology are now saying that means anything that falls under this category is therefore bad for you. That's where. I fall out with that group because there's so much more to food than whether it's ultra-processed or not. Now, the reason that these the team and then advocates of it 
first came up with the term and then used the, the Nova classification is they felt the nutricentric way we view foods was too reductive. By nutricentric, I mean breaking, talking about foods in the sum of their nutrient parts, so like how much protein it's got, how much fats it's got, the type of fats, the vitamins and minerals, the fiber, etc. That's a nutricentric view. And that was felt to be too reductive. So what they thought would come along, look at the degree of processing and then it's not what it's got in it, it's how it's processed that's, that's the, the issue. So they've come up with something more reductive that's got four groups let's look at breakfast cereals because they're products that i've got no affiliations with okay you've got your sugary coated ones we all know they're not great for us Uh but you know if you struggle if your kid's struggling to eat breakfast then maybe it's better than nothing right and i think it probably is yeah you you have it with milk as well as a good source of nutrition from milk i'm I'm not i'm not talking about the plant-based argument here that can be put aside but there are alternatives but then you've got something like you've got shredded wheat and you've got um, Weetabix and Shreddies. Now, you, you, so your hardiest ultra-processed food definition advocate would say things like porridge or muesli would be the only ones you should have. And you'd say, well, what about shredded wheat? 100% whole wheat. Surely that's not ultra-processed. And by their definition, it's not. But it does make health claims, like healthy heart and high fibre on it. So this is where it gets into the fuzz. And I think shredded wheat, not only do I love them, they're nutritious. And you don't just have them. You don't eat them out of the packet unless you're a bit weird. But you have them with milk and, you know, maybe a little bit of sugar. Not ideal, but if you do, you can put some raisins on it maybe. But then Weetabix and Shreddies, well, they do contain added ingredients that you can't buy from your local supermarket. So they probably would come under this group four. Yet they're high fibre. You have them with milk, high protein. They've got some added vitamins, they've got some naturally occurring vitamins in them. Who would want to discourage eating those nutritious gems? I would certainly rather uh, advocate my kids having shredders than I would them having some sugary-coated ones, if there was the choice. Yeah. So why are we demonising these foods? And, you know, and, uh, interestingly, it's not just these pseudo-nutritionists that are talking about, some highly credible nutritionists that seem to be stuck in the bias of this... Um, ultra-processed food uh, definition. Now, let me just ramble for a couple more minutes before you, you come in yeah. there, Kirsty. sorry. But it's, you've got the, the book that came out this year, Ultra-Processed People by Chris Van Tulliken. He uh, He's an otherwise brilliant um, nutritionist, and that book is well worth the read. I, I recommend people get it. I just profoundly disagree with, with some of it. I still recommend it, and the end of it, the last couple of chapters, amazing. We talked about food policy. I, it's just the definition bit with him. It's the ultra-processed. If you sub- substituted the term junk food for every time you use the words ultra-processed food, I'm in line with this whole book. Interesting. So, so, what, so you could probably be asking me now, well, James, do you not like Nova? No, Nova has its place. It, it should stay. But it's useful for looking at how certain styles of eating relate to disease risk in the same way that we might, for instance, look at the Mediterranean diet and disease risk or the, or the carnivore diet and disease risk or the plant-based diet and disease risk. But it should stay in academia. I don't dislike the definition. I don't even dislike the definition ultra-processed food. What I dislike and what I object to for some of the reasons I've just stated, and I can talk for a lot longer if, if I, for other reasons as well, what I dislike is the way that some communicators are pushing the term to be used by the general public in everyday parlance. That's, that's what needs to stop for me. Um, there are other attributes of food that are way more important. The, for instance, and we can talk about the biology if we've got time, but 
the fiber content of the food, the protein content of the food, as well as the vitamins and minerals and the phytonutrients, which are all the good stuff that we find in plants. These are all super important as well. So if you've got an ultra-processed food, just because it comes under that heading that's got all those other things, I think it's great. In fact, it's probably better for you than some foods that come under Nova 3. How do you think that gets combated? Is that How do you think the communication improves? What, how do communication should improve? How should we try and tell people what a better food choice yeah, is to make? Yeah, educate people. Okay, I think it's more what people aren't eating than what they are eating. I think we should focus on what they are okay, eating. Cool. What yeah, are we not eating? Yeah, we should be. So we know they're getting plenty of fibre in. So let's encourage fibre, both the insoluble and the soluble. Um, the soluble is even better for your gut microbiome, you know, all the uh, all the good bacteria and other microbes that live in our gut and there are links to mental health and cognition there. Um, fibre, the protein content. Now here's, here's a quick fact for for some people they might find interesting. Protein, the, protein might have the same amount of calories as something else, but the caloric availability is a lot lower. So if you were to have, for example, 100 calories worth of sugar, around about 99 of those calories will be absorbed and utilised. If you have 100 calories of protein, only around 70 of those calories will be absorbed and utilised. So for the same amount of calories you're eating, which is why calorie counting is not a good strategy, another conversation, another day, um, is you're having fewer you're having fewer, your body's having fewer calories, which is why protein-rich foods, fiber-rich foods, they help fill you up. They tell your brain you don't want to eat so much, why, why they're very good, which is why sugary foods and some highly refined, more complex carbs cannot not be great. You, know, you want wholesome, high-fiber carbs. And often, so often the food choices are low in vitamins and minerals as well. The other one is essential fats. We all know that we need, there's two essential fatty acids, but we know that we're not getting enough omega-3s, um, which are the ones we get from fish oils. But there are vegan sources as well now, and you can get them from um, nuts and seeds, especially flax seeds and chia seeds and hemp seeds and even walnuts. Um, and so we should be encouraging those. So it's eating, and the five fruit and veggie day as well. If you do that, that's already going to be, be helping you. It's a good message. And it government have been pushing it for years. It's not really working that well, maybe slightly better than it used to. It's not that hard. But fruit and veg isn't always that cheap. People can buy these ultra-processed junk food alternatives that are easier to prepare, cheaper. So I get it. And almost like that's just should not be demonised because if that's going to... I'd, I'd rather be encouraging people to have other foods. But no must-haves, just encouraging, you know, if, if this is your diet, maybe just try and, you know, maybe just have some... If you are eating a, a, a lot of junk food and that's just what you, what you have, maybe can you get yourself some nuts and nuts and maybe have a scoop, a handful of nuts once a day as a mid-afternoon snack. Maybe an item of fruit just on top of that. Start there. That's a really good piece of advice. And you've mentioned there the gut biome and mental health. And there's so much research being done into this at the moment and a lot more conversations going around it. From your point of view and your own research, how important are those links and what is the groundbreaking research? I mean, we know so little as humans, even you know your best academics who work in this field. What we do know is there's good links with having a good microbiome and digestion. There's good links with uh, immune system and there's good links with cognition and mental health, broadly speaking. How that works, we, we don't know. There's so much to learn here and I wouldn't know it's, it's not my key area. Um, the, the key points are, though, having both 
a good, healthy microbiome and having a diverse microbiome. Now, different types of microbe and different species probably flourish off different foods. So having a variety of foods can be good here. Uh, if people aren't having any fruit and veg, just have something. For those who are listening that maybe do have quite a, a lot of fruit and veg, maybe diverse uh, range a bit. Maybe over the course of a week, maybe choose a few different things. That, that can be helpful. If you're fortunate enough and privileged enough to be able to make that decision, of course, then, then that's good advice. Since you have been working with Huel and working on this project where the brand does not only really do nutrition from an outsider, it also very much suggests a lifestyle and well-being and overall mind-body health. What are some of the greatest lessons you've learned with that and what have you implemented to your own lifestyle? So at Huel, we, yeah, we do advocate anything that's health-related and I, I hope people come to the website huel.com not just to buy Huel. They come there and there's a whole guys and articles section with probably too many um, useful articles on there. Um, but we do have a navigation page that makes it a lot easier. And some of them are around how that relate to Huel, but most of them are around healthy lifestyle. But some of the things I've changed in my own lifestyle don't just come from working with Huel. They just come from other stuff I've done. I, I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that I had sort of issues probably with my own mental health to some degree up until a six or seven years ago. I was quite ill in 2016, had an infection on my spine, was on a load of painkillers. And so in 2017, when I came off those rather nice drugs from one perspective, I was, wasn't was in a very good place. Huel was taking off. I was feeling the pressure quite a lot. And I, and I that spent most of summer in 2017 not in a good place mentally. But my sort of hunger for knowledge science-backed knowledge probably led me down a good path. Now, I'd been always been one of those dismissing everything new age, hippie, um, as rubbish. So when I heard about meditation, I thought, oh, that was just loads of new age rubbish. Who wants to know that? Until I started reading some very credible scientists, some neuroscientists, some just more general psychologists or philosophers that I respected that were talking about the benefits. Then I started to read the research. Oh, this isn't bullshit. It actually is quite good. So I found meditation quite good, as well as that actually, in the early stages, acknowledging gratitude. I won't say I actually practiced it as a practice, but just acknowledging that actually I'm not just pretty well off. I'm really well off. So that, that was useful. Um, and also I just reframe, I, I committed probably a bit more recently to trying to live my life through an objective mindset. So challenging any beliefs. Now, beliefs are great. We, can all, we all must have our beliefs. But try and rationalise why we have them and not just follow the crowd. I know what I've just said there, that it's impossible. But we try not to. Try and know our biases. So I try to just live my, live my life acknowledging why I'm feeling this way. And I fail every day, several times every day, but I try. But even that's an important thing to acknowledge and be aware of. I think biases are such an interesting thing especially mm. in the topics that we've discussed, because we're all a victim of our own confirmation bias. And for those that don't know, that's essentially a cognitive bias where you're more likely to believe something you already know or already lean towards than new information coming in. And I think in this day of age of social media, pseudo-influencing, everything like that, that can be really difficult to... Mm -hmm. Yeah. navigate in itself so having an awareness of that and probably for yourself having an evidence-based background already it probably made it easier to adopt that when you were going through a hard time 
I think so. I don't know what what initiated it, you know, but it's almost like why did I wait till my mid forties to start start viewing life this? I probably was to some degree doing it. I've always been cautious of the conspiratorial mindset, for instance, like mm. challenging, you know, why conspiracists are challenging the main narrative. Not, you know, there's an whole realize what I've just said, there's a whole rabbit warren we could go down there. Yeah. Um but I've always challenged beliefs and I was probably more of an agnostic on the whole Christianity thing for most of my time until I really thought about it and then then, then set in a, in a, a specific viewpoint. It, it's just trying to be more open-minded. I think if there's one thing people can do, and it replies to what I was talking about when you were asking me about how to discern who's a good influencer or nutrition, it's the same with anything, right? Listen to people with different ranges of opinion. And I get it, we don't have time these days to go and read one newspaper or news source, let alone two from a, you know, a left and a right wing one, but we can watch different influencers. If we're watching influencers already, you know, whilst cat videos are great fun, do we want to watch them all the time? Totally. And how can individuals adopt evidence-based practices while also embracing like balance between nutrition, lifestyle, modern society as well? Well, few people don't you know, know how to read a scientific paper and few people need to know. You don't need to. It's why we have experts, but there seems to be this anti-expertise thing going around, especially prevalent since COVID, which I understand because the so-called experts, you know, said, said very conflicting information. And like you alluded to earlier, Kirsty, in nutrition, it's the same. And I bet it in your field of, you know, in psychology and stuff as well, there's people with conflicting information. It comes back to listening to different experts. Don't just listen to one podcast on, you know, with someone who sounds really credible. How credible are they? Is there anyone else who's picking apart their, you know, what they've said? It doesn't mean the, the person picking them apart is right. They could be wrong. Just You've just got to try and realise that we all have biases, like the cognitive bias or the hindsight bias or other heuristics that, that we might have and just acknowledge them and try and just listen to other people's opinions. It's hard. We're not, it's it's not our default mode, is it? We, our default mode is to follow the crowd. We were tribal creatures. We wanted to be light, so we'd follow the crowd and do as we're told. To, but the fact that humans have developed this big prefrontal cortex that enables us to challenge means that we are set up to challenge and, and nobody has to just adhere to their cognitive biases. Mm. You've touched on a tough time back in 2016, 2017. Mm. What do you really accredit to getting yourself out of that stage? So partly my wife, got to give her, you know, we'd only been married a year when I, I came ill. We got married in 2015, just after we started Yule actually. Um, and then, you know, when I, when I was ill in autumn 2016, you know, she was very supportive and it must have been a lot of stress on her as well. Um, then I think I just realised I don't, I'd been depressed on and off for most of my life and I realised I just didn't like it very much. I didn't really want it, didn't want to do it any, any longer. So I decided and I put in things in place, not in, semi-intentionally, of course there was an intention behind it, but they probably just crept in one by one. I thought, well, this is good practice, this is well research, let's just do it. And then I realised a few months later, I thought, I could categorically say, now I will never get depressed again. Now you must have weird. How can you say that? Well, I will have my down days. I have had them this year, had them last year. I will get down and pissed off, like we all do. And some days I won't be able to explain why. I just call them blue days now because they're not what they were, what I used to get. And, you know, it's 
I guess there's maturity in there as well. In your 50s, you kind of realise that it's time to enjoy life if you haven't been enjoying it already. And let's be honest, I have been extremely fortunate. I have got a great wife. I have got lots of friends. I am financially sound, you know, and I'm in a good job working with people I like. So you could be people listening to this saying, well, of course you're fine, James. Yeah, what you got to be worried about? Yeah, but as you know, with your neuroscience background, your depression doesn't work like that. It's more complicated. It's a mixture of stuff that happens in the real world and stuff that happens on the in- inside world. You're creating an environment that works for you to commit to yourself and understanding how your own mental well-being works and... Trying to. Change. Trying to. I don't... No, it's to be non-committal here because I think if people try to commit and say that's... it's, It's never a job done. No. But would you say that you've made steps to commit to putting that effort in? Yes. So that continuation... I think that's fair. I think that would be fair. I've certainly made steps. Meditating as a practice probably isn't as often as I yeah. as I should. But what do you see for the future of nutrition and mental well-being will continue to grow? I would like to see more emphasis put on in, in younger people as as I would nutrition um, and I uh, and acknowledge on mental well-being in the right way. I mean, I'm not involved in education at all. I'm not always sure it's done in the right way. I'm I'm not an expert. I shouldn't shouldn't comment. But I would like to see it being promoted in schools routinely. I would also like to see rationality being taught as its own subject. Okay, how come? But, you know, well, by that I mean everything that goes into rationality, like being objective, there's a certain, you know, I don't want to talk too much off off here, but things like Bayesian reasoning, where you look at, you you revise your views based on prior knowledge. And and what would fall into that? You know, a lot of things could fall into that. Politics could fall under that heading because, you know, why we follow... um, different ways of thinking. You, you've mentioned biases. Well, teach people all the different types of biases so they know what they are. I think it should be taught in some format and then you maybe lead to a less polarised world and then people mm-hmm. might feel better. You've shared so many pieces of advice within that and really interesting things to think about. And if there's one more thing to leave listeners with from or something they can introduce their lifestyle to include better nutrition, what would it be? Eat more fruit and veg. That's a good one. Cool. And we're just going to end on a very quick fire round of questions. So, James, favourite colour? Don't really have favourites. I don't want to let the other ones down. <laughs> favourite cuisine? <laughs> favourite cuisine, as in for taste and... T- oh. Yeah. Depends what mood. I do like good old-fashioned English fish and chips. That's a good one. Country you'd like to visit? Costa Rica. Best drink? You're all ready to drink. <laughs> favourite book you've recently read? Oh, Michael Pollan's Cooked, but 10 years ago. I like Michael, Michael Pollan. I only got around to reading Cooked recently. Yeah, he's interesting. Mind on Plants is another one. Yeah, I've read most of his. I've read that as well, yeah. Go-to karaoke song? I don't do karaoke. Although for the first time recently, about two months ago, I got roped into it. and I, I was planning on going through my whole life never doing it, and I ended up doing um, Spice Girls. <laughs> Which song? Um, the first one. What is it want to be? What, yeah, yeah. Oh, you heard that here first. <laughs> <laughs> Coffee or matcha? Oh, coffee. Early morning person or late night? Middle of the day. <laughs> Are you a reading or a podcast person? Both. Best Huel product? Uh, RTD. And that's it, James. Thank you so much for coming on the Cognate Podcast. Thanks for having me. Great conversation. Great. Thank you.